just sort of aware of, I guess, at, at Christmas time is uh, we so frequently treat um, the birth of Christ. We so tre- frequently treat Advent like its own separate entity. And even as John prayed just a few minutes ago, uh, it's actually part of a larger story uh, that that is really the whole of Scripture. And so uh, my aim, my hope, uh, this Advent season, we don't do Advent sermons every year. We do them every other year. Part of that's my own, I'll admit it, it's my own frailty and weakness. I feel like that after about five Advent series, you've kind of run the course. Like, what's left? Um, so I bought myself ten years of Advent sermons by doing them every other year. Um, but uh, at any rate. So turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter one, uh, I'm, we're not going to read the entire chapter, uh, so I will ask that you, if, if you are, are willing and able, to stand as we re- read God's Word together. We'll read the first two verses and then start pick up in verse 26. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void. And darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now down to verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him male and female. He created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over everything, every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with its seed, with seed and its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, and everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that He had made, and behold, it was very good. And it was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the Word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray. Now we pray, O Holy Spirit, that You would be at work in us now. We need Your help. We need Your understanding uh, to not just understand this passage, but to grow in our love for Christ, our understanding of, of Christmas, of Advent, of why we celebrate the birth of Christ at all. And so we pray for Your special work now. Use this, Your Word, to conform us more and more into the image of Christ. For it's in His name that we ask it. Amen. You may be seated. First lines uh, matter. Uh, it was the best of times. It was the worst of times. I'm really kind of half tempted to go. It's the longest run on sentence and, and a whole bunch of comma splices. And it's Dickens, so don't even waste your time. Yes, you now you know how I feel about Charles Dickens. Um, or, or Mr. and Miss Dursley of number four Privet Drive were proud to say that they were perfectly normal. Thank you very much. Or... This is my favorite book in all the world, though I have never read it. And you thought I couldn't work a Princess Bride illustration into a literary. 
It's a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. Or perhaps my favorite in the list, it was a pleasure to burn. First lines matter. The first thing written, okay, if you need to know the list, I'll give you the list later. Don't, don't start Googling, don't grab your phone and go, wait a minute, what, what was that? We'll, we'll talk later. But first lines matter. The, 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 way, the way books begin, the way stories begin, that first line makes all the difference between do I keep reading or do I put it down? Is, is this line going to make me continue reading this story or am I so done with it right off the start? And for that matter, it's funny how that works because they're intended to make you not put the book down, but then they also make so much more sense when you finish the book. You understand the Dursleys and number four Predator Drive and the fact that they're perfectly normal. Thank you very much. Once you've finished the story, it's intriguing enough to keep reading. But it makes so much more sense once you know the rest of the story. None of those lines is as fitting an introduction as the first line of all the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It sets the the stage for the rest of the story. It, it, It sets the stage for everything that's going to come after it. And for that matter, when you finish reading the rest of Scripture, that verse even makes that much more sense to you. It has that much more meaning to you. It has that much more emphasis to you. And for that matter, it actually sets the stage for a right understanding of Christmas, even in 2018. Without that opening line, the story of Christmas would almost be meaningless. Without this beginning of all of Scripture, Christmas makes very little sense at all. Why? Why can we go from from that opening line? Why can we go from this beginning of the story to Christmas 2018 and go, okay, I get it now, I understand. First, look at what what these, these verses, this passage teaches about God. Now, I'm, I need you for like two minutes. Promise me you've had your coffee. Promise me you've got your thinking cap on. Because I want you to notice something. The first four words, in the beginning, God. Now, work with me for just a second. That sounds like before the beginning, God was already there. That's that's two cups of coffee kind of thinking right there, right? I mean, like, hold on. How can it be the beginning if someone or something exists prior to the beginning? That sounds to me like it's not really the beginning. But that's what the passage says. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That means that when everything began, God was already there. That it was the beginning for what He created, but it's not the beginning for God. Okay, that you see what I'm saying? That's... Brain cramp kind of, right? But that's exactly what Scripture is saying. We learn, we're four words into the Bible and we learn something. That God is eternal. That God is self-existent. He exists just because He is. Just because He is He. Just because He is God. He 
exists. He is. He doesn't have a beginning like the rest of us because at the beginning, He was already there making things be created that weren't, that it was their beginning. But you see, sort of already we understand something about God. We understand that He's, that He lives outside of time. That if He can be there before the beginning, then that means He created the beginning, which means He created time. And He's not bound by time. You and I are, are bound by time and space. We have a birth. We have a death. And, and that is the, the, you hear it at funerals so often, the dash between the, the two dates on your headstone. It's, that's, that, you live a dash. You live, those are your sort of end marks, the beginning and the end of your life. There's, there's no, it's all a dash for God. There's no beginning. There's no end. There's no start date. There's no end date. There's no birth. There's no death. He exists outside of time because He created time. And so that, so that in the beginning, when the beginning came and He started creating everything, He was already there. That means He was there before time was. And that's your third cup of coffee. Just to keep all of that straight. We talk about things like next Tuesday. You know, I'll gladly pay you Tuesday for a hamburger day. We talk about next Tuesday. We talk about, you know, 500 years ago. Well, now 501 years since sort of the start of the Protestant Reformation. There's no... God doesn't have a yesterday. He doesn't have a tomorrow. He doesn't have a next Thursday. It's, it's It's all present. It's all seen to Him. It's all... That's why the New Testament writer can say it's a, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day because it's all present to him. He lives outside of time. He's not bound by time the way you and I are. He doesn't have yesterdays and tomorrows the same way that we do. Now, he, he knows how time works. He understands how time works. He created it. He, he made it to be a thing that, that we live by and live under, but he's just not bound by it. He's outside of it. It's subject to Him, not the other way around. All of creation has a beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The heavens and the earth, that's, that's Hebrew language for everything up there and everything down here. Everything sort of up in the sky, all the heavenly bodies and, and everything on or under or in or uh, you know around the earth. All of creation has a beginning, but God is eternal. God is was there at the beginning. He's, he's not created, and so He's not bound by time. He's self-existent. He exists in and of Himself. There's a second um, thing we learn about God from this first sentence. We learn that He's all-powerful. That He creates everything you and I take for granted. He doesn't, he doesn't need help to exist, but everything else that is, everything else that exists, depends on Him to exist. Giraffes didn't make themselves. Finback whales didn't make themselves. Sea urchins didn't create sea urchins. These things 
all exist because God brought them into existence. He's, he's not dependent on anyone and everything that is made, everything that is, is fully and completely dependent on Him because He made it. In fact, we learn as the chapter unfolds, we didn't, we didn't read this, but we learn how He made everything. Now, you should know I'm not I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give myself some credit. I'm not much of a woodworker. And by that I mean I'm not. But not much of one sounds like I have some, you know, okay. I've never had the tools. I've never had the space. I've really never had the time. There is a part of me that would, that would love to be, like, thinks that'd be kind of cool. Like if I could have a big old shop set up with all the tools I needed and all that sort of stuff. You know, but I've got to go and figure out where the battery for the drill is. And then, of course, it's not charged, so I've got to charge the battery. And then I've got to find the saw. And then, then you've got to sort of drag everything out into the driveway or into the garage or someplace where you can work. And so you spend as much time setting up and cleaning up. And then by that time, you've used all the time you have to work. There's no setting up. There's no, where's the drill battery in Genesis 1? There's no, well, hold on, now I've got to switch plugs and plug in the table saw because I've now got to unplug the, the miter saw and plug in something different. Or now I've got to plug in the sander or I've got to plug... There's none of that in Genesis 1. Nothing gets plugged in. There are no tools. There are no instruments. God creates everything simply by the word of His power, we're told. He says, let there be and there is. There are no tools to drag out. There are no, no finding attachments or digging up batteries. You're supposed to be amazed by that. I mean, you are supposed to read Genesis 1. You're supposed to read, and God said, let there be, and there was. You're supposed to react with all the sweat and hard work that I've got to go through to produce a bookshelf. I mean, think of all the good contractors and woodworkers and landscapers you know. They have trailers full of tools. You know what would make them better? Woodworkers and landscapers and builders, whatever the words I wasn't. You know what would make them better? If they didn't need the trailer at all. Let there be a house. With, and then you can fill in the blanks. I'm assuming, this, this may not be totally fair, I'm assuming that most of us don't really get tired talking. I'm assuming that you can say a sentence without really getting worn out and, and working up a sweat. Let there be. And there was. You're supposed to be amazed by it. You're supposed to, especially as, as ancient Israel heading into the promised land, Moses writing these uh, inspired by God and, and writing these, these, these words inspired by the Holy Spirit to Israel on their way to the promised land. And they're about to go into this place where there are foreign gods and, and big giant people and, and the warriors. And, and they're supposed to think, huh, all these trees and all those animals that we just passed on the way from Egypt to, to here. God made all that. This should be easy for Him. 
That's what we're supposed to think. That's supposed to be our reaction. God's all-powerful. There's a third implication from this very beginning of Genesis. And it's this. If He has made everything, if everything exists because it was His idea, He's created it, He's brought it into existence, that means He's the King and ruler of all of it. That means that all that He has created owes Him worship, gratitude, and obedience. He establishes the the laws of the land. He establishes the laws of creation. And we are all to be subject to those laws. He puts the stars and the planets in their places, gives them their instructions so that centuries later, navigators can, can, can circumnavigate the globe following the stars. Why? Because they follow the pattern. They do exactly what God told them to do. They follow the pattern exactly. And they know in this season, at this time of year, that's where the Southern Cross should be. And look, there it is. And they can sail accordingly. Stars, the planets, and reindeers, and polar bears, and yellow labs, and ducks, and whatever else. They all do what they're supposed to do. They all bring Him honor and glory by being and doing the very thing God told them to be and to do. He's the the king and, and ruler over all of it. He establishes the laws by which we live. He's given us His Word to do just that. And we learn all of that just from this first sentence. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. These are all things we learn about God. God's eternal. He's self-existent. He's all-powerful. He's the king and ruler over all of His creation. And there's probably more. But we also learn some things about us, about ourselves, about people, about mankind, about creation in this verse. First, this might be too obvious, but we aren't God. We are part of the created the heavens and the earth line. We aren't the God who created everything. Like we recognize that Deuteronomy 6 says, Behold, the Lord our God, the Lord, He is one. We are many. We are not God. You, are not, you don't get to be God. You don't get to be in charge. I don't get to be God. I sure would like to sometimes, but I don't get to be God. I don't get to be in control. We're created beings. We're not all-powerful, self-existent. We didn't bring everything into existence simply by speaking. And so the first thing we learn, even from the very first sentence of the Bible, is that we are not God. There are philosophies out there that will teach you that God is everywhere, that God is in everything. He's in the trees. He's in the plants. He's in the animals. He's, he's kind of in everything and, and that for that matter, you could, you could become God or you could become a God. And this passage says God is completely other. He's completely different from His creation. That His creation isn't God. That that tree outside in your yard that you think is so amazingly beautiful, it's beautiful and it's a great tree, but it isn't God. And God isn't in that tree the way He's, he's 
you know, just sort of everywhere spiritual omnipresent sort of way. He's not in a special way uh, in that tree. It speaks against pantheism, that God is everywhere and in everything. There are other philosophies. This is sort of prevailing in the world today that will tell you, you are in charge of you. You do you. And don't let anybody tell you otherwise. You do you establish what's right and wrong for you. And then they'll always add this, as long as you don't hurt anybody else. I wonder, how did that become the universal, sort of the universally accepted command? You can do what you want as long as you don't hurt anybody else. The, the, the one universal truth that, that everyone seems to, to latch onto. Right and wrong, they're up to you as long as you don't hurt anybody else. You do whatever makes you happy as long as you don't hurt anybody else. Well, this passage reminds us that there's an authority over us. That there's, there's someone over us who establishes right and wrong. Who, who sets our boundaries. Who on whom we are dependent for our existence, for existence, for our homes. He's created us. He's created the earth on which we live. We're dependent on Him for our world. And we're dependent on Him for our morality. If, if He has brought into existence all that is, then He gets to say this is right and this is wrong. If He's the Creator, King, and Ruler, and we are His subjects, then we live... We should live by His standards according to His commands. There are others who would tell you that God is just a mean, overbearing ogre who takes great pleasure in ruining our fun and pleasure in life. But did you notice verses 26 to 31? We're actually the pinnacle of creation. Adam and Eve, mankind, we're the, the pinnacle of all of creation. Nothing else. I realize we didn't read verses um, 3 through 30, but trust me, nowhere else in there does God have a conversation. Does God say, let us make, make llamas in our image. Let us make Venus flytraps in our image. Nowhere else does God do that. Nothing else is the pinnacle of creation. Nothing else can say He has given us his, the imprint of His image and, and so therefore we reflect His image back to Him. We are set above the rest of creation. We are intended to be His vice regents ruling and governing over creation in His place as He would. And no other creature gets to claim that. No other creature, no dolphin can say, but God made me in His image and I'm supposed to rule over the ocean. Only man has that claim. This is why, by the way, C.S. Lewis can, can have Aslan say to Caspian, you come of the Lord Adam and the Lady Eve. And that is both honor enough to raise the head of the poorest beggar and shame enough to bow the head of the greatest emperor on earth. Why is it a great enough honor to raise the head of the poorest beggar? Because even the poorest beggar bears God's image. Even the poorest beggar has been created in God's image. Yes, the image has been marred by sin. We'll talk about that, Lord willing, next 
Sunday. But that image isn't dependent on your age, your income, your, your gender, your skin color, the, 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 which team you pull for, which state you live in or grew up in. I mean, it, it's not dependent on any of those things. What language you speak, all mankind is, bears that image. The image of God imprinted on us, in us, from the very beginning. In other words, man was designed to have a special relationship with God that none of the other creatures, none of the other created beings can claim. But we also learn in verses 26 to 31 that we have a job. Uh, We are to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Adam and Eve are supposed to to spread, to scatter little image bearers everywhere God rules. Which, by the way, is everywhere. So the design was, the plan was to spread little image bearers throughout all of creation. Adam and Eve are given jobs. Man is put in the garden to, to tend and to care for it. And you're reminded of that bluegrass song that, that O oh Brother, Where Art Thou brought to my, my attention. The Big Rock Candy Mountain. Right there at the end where it says where they hung the jerk that invented work in the Big Rock Candy Mountain. Work may be spelled with four letters, but it's not a bad word. Work is a good thing. When we work, we reflect God's image. Because here He is, right here in Genesis 1, working. So, We're given a job. We're given a function. We're given a a responsibility within creation. So in Genesis 1, we learn about God. We learn about man. But we also learn a little bit about Christmas. Look at verse 31. After six days of creation, after forming man out of the dust of the earth and breathing life into his nostrils and setting man up as the the pinnacle of creation, God says in verse 31, and behold, it was very good. Now, until now, at the end of each day, all we read is, and it was good. It's not until after man is created that God says, "And, and it's very good. Now, here's the thing. If I were to, you know, create some piece of art, if I were to paint a picture, draw a picture, my family's going to laugh because I'm, there's not an artistic, I can't draw stick people. But humor me for a second. If I were to make a piece of art, a painting, a drawing of some sort, I would reach a point where I might stand back and go, huh, that's kind of good. It's not likely because I don't, I can't. But pretend I can for a second. But it would have that sound of shock, right? Huh? That's good. There'd be a level of surprise. There'd be a level of um, how did I do that? Like I don't know, that's kind of good. I don't know how I pulled that. Look at look at that guy. Got that sound to it, right? That, that's not what God means. God's not like at the end of each day sitting back and going, "That's good," but something's still missing. So he comes back the next day and adds a little more. Then at the end of that day, it's good, but... And then at the end of day six, there's man and... and, Ah, it's very good. 
And what he means is, now I'm done. I've, I've reached the purpose. I've reached the aim. I've reached the end of the goal of creation. I've made everything that I have set out to make. And it's, 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 a, it's almost a command that it is good. Not so much a description. God's sitting back and looking and going, oh, what I did. That's kind of good. Finally, with man on the earth, behold, it's very good. What does that have to do with Christmas? Look around you. Is it still very good? Can you wake up tomorrow and turn on the news and go through your day and at the end of the day tomorrow go, yeah, it's still very good. It's still just as God as it was when God finished the work at the end of Genesis one, it's just now, it's exactly the way God wanted it to be. Is it as God made it? Now we'll, we'll deal, Lord willing, with the fall next week. But for now, you can look around you and you can say that the peace that Adam and Eve knew in the garden is not present in our world in 2018. You know what Christmas is about? It's about God stepping into His creation. It's about God taking to Himself a a form and limitations that He didn't have before. That He didn't have here in Genesis 1. In flesh, as a man, so that He might fix what Adam and Eve broke. Christmas is about, about God taking on flesh to fix what man breaks. Our New Testament reading, Genesis 3, all those son of and son of and and John did his best to make it, you know, a little more interesting to our ears. But it's name, the son of name, the son of another name, the son of... I mean, for 15 verses, I think it was. You've read Jesus' genealogy. Now, hold on. According to Genesis 1, Jesus doesn't have a genealogy. According to Genesis 1, He existed before the beginning. The the triune God has always been. Jesus can't have a genealogy. So what do you do in reading Luke 3 and telling me Jesus has a genealogy? Well, He can if and only if He takes on humanity. And in Luke 3... We traced his genealogy all the way back to Adam, the first sinner, the breaker of creation, the failed vice regent. Christmas is about celebrating a new representative, a second Adam, the fixer of all that the first Adam broke. It's about celebrating the creator, taking on the image of the creation. Because the man created in his image failed to represent Him, to love Him, to obey Him well. Celebrate that this Christmas season. The Creator. And John 1 tells us that nothing was made without Him. The Creator took on the form of the creation. The Creator took on the image of the creation 
because the creation failed in bearing the image of the Creator. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your love and mercy to us, even as sinners, even as fallen, broken creatures, as people who owed you obedience and honor and glory and worship and who instead sought it for ourselves, that you in your deep love for us still sent your son. If the image bearer was going to fail in bearing that image, you would send a new representative, a new image bearer. So the second person of the Trinity took on flesh. We tried to be like you, and that forced you to become like us. So that you might bear our sin and our guilt, so that we might find freedom from that sin and from that guilt, and the hope of eternity with you. Father, would you reinstill in us that that's what Christmas is, you breaking into your creation to fix what we broke. Through Christ, we ask it. Amen.